Welcome to another episode of the Comfort, Comfort Monk, Monk Podcast. Podcast. Oh, never said it at the same time before. We should do that more often. Uh, <laughs> today we are speaking with the legendary Chuck Treese, who has, God, he's done so much work over the years. Uh, he's a very iconic skateboarder. He was the first African-American skateboarder to ever be on the cover of Thrasher magazine. We had a chance to talk about that a bit. He's also just a super accomplished musician whether it be through some of his earlier projects he is in uh, some skate punk kind of projects mcrad and uh, a handful of others those tracks were really commonly heard in a lot of the early powell peralta and other skate videos i think that might be sort of what chuck's intro into the skate scene was or at least on a bigger scale um and then you know later on he ended up joining one of the later incarnations of Bad Brains. Uh, he, we spoke a little bit about how he, just sort of chance of fate, ended up playing on Billy Joel's River of Dreams, which I'm sure you have all heard as hold music at some point in your life. <laughs> it's a kind of a fucking wild track to be on just because it is a... It's really commonplace in, in like all, all sorts of worlds where you wouldn't necessarily expect, you know, punker skater guys mm -hmm. to to be heard so elevators yeah it's wild malls. man and it's a you know i listened back to it and i was like that bass part definitely slaps it's like one yeah. of the, one of the highlights of the track um but and you know chuck has just been involved in so much amazing music over the years and more recently we were really really grateful to have him be a part of ray barbie's cover of doses taking away the fire on uh, the Comfort Monk Gratitude Volume 1 compilation. And I believe Chuck might be working on an original tune for the for the follow-up compilation Volume 2. So um, we've kind of gotten to know Chuck a little better since we, you know, not only just from talking to him on the show, but uh, from collaborating and just staying in touch. Uh, and he's just an incredibly kind person who we're really, really happy to have gotten to know better and to to have involved in this comfort monk sphere of of artists um and i i could ramble on and on I, i'm really really excited about the connection we've made there and how that conversation went but i think i'll just let the the interview speak for itself um but yeah thanks so much for listening guys this is our episode with the legendary chuck treese All right, make sure to check out the new uh, Dear Blanca record, Perched, coming out on Comfort Monk Records. It's our first uh, physical release, CM001. We're very excited about it. And I'm slightly biased being that I'm in the band, but you should buy it, and it would be much appreciated. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Available at DearBlanca.com. Yep. You've been at a... At FDR skate park for kind of forever, right? And and sort of still still your stomping grounds. Yeah, still my stomping grounds. It's been 25 years. It started in '95, and a friend of mine is uh, Tom Martin. TZ is his nickname. You know, he showed me you know the first plans of the city. It you know you know put down there, and it was really it was cool. So I'm honored to be a part of it. That's awesome, man. Yeah, I was watching an old music video of yours, uh, and it looked like some of it was shot there. Um, was it for weakness, maybe, I think? Yeah, yeah, so there's been a couple of different things that have been done there, yeah. Nice, man. So what what came first for you, man? Were you, were you skating or playing music first as a kid? As a kid, I, I started playing drums. Like, my interest for drums is around age two. My first drum kit, age six. My first show with my dad's, he had, he had a top 40 band that was, like, age eight. And then skateboarding showed up around age 11. I used to live in this, it was a predominantly black neighborhood. And for some reason, you know, the skateboards with the metal wheels, they just went to all the kids. They didn't kind of discriminate who they were trying to just market this, you know, new item to. And I remember most of my friends could do handstands and ride and rip it the first day they got it, but they lost interest in it. For me, I had to like hold on to a wall and learn how to tic-tac and right. just get my balance. And for some reason, that initial love for kind of progressing on a skateboard, you know, led me to still be on it today. 
when, when to my friends, it was so easy for them. They were, they were they were already doing handstands, literally, on their skateboards, running, you know, going down the hill down the street because they were just really you know, on gymnastics, and it was nothing to them. But they didn't have the lifestyle connected to it. You know what I mean? So that's right. why that's why I'm getting out out of skateboarding in the, in the beginnings of my skateboarding and music. That's awesome, man. So I guess you had to put a little more time in it at the beginning, and it made it stick. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, it was weird because it was like the you know there's no grip tape, there's no nothing. You're like you get you get this apparatus and it looks like a scooter, but there's metal wheels and everything's small. And then certain people related to it, but then for me, I was like, there's there's more into this than just this board. And then from that interest of learning how those little teeny tiny boards work to just how skateboards work today, it's I can't it's it's, it's mind boggling how how crazy skateboarding is. Oh, definitely, man. Yeah, the the progression has been wild to think about how it started and where it is now. Oh my um, god, it's crazy. So you you said you were you were playing in a top forty band of your dad's when you were eight. What what was that band? Yeah. Um, I can't remember the the actual name of his top forty band, but they basically he was a, a military PT instructor um, located in Fort Dix, New Jersey, and so I guess they started the band him with a bunch of friends uh, in the while they were active in the military. And probably around when I was like age two or you know three or something like that. So they would always rehearse at my house, and they would always give me a song during rehearsal that had a drum solo in it. So I guess one time my dad thought that I was ready to go and do that, and there was a club called Boots and Bonnets in Chester, and they invited me up, and that was it. That was it. I, from that point on, I was like, yeah, I, this is what I meant to do, you know. That's incredible, man. What what did your dad play in the band? He played tenor sax, and he was the band leader. Oh, okay. So you guys were, I mean, it, it must have been like a, I was thinking it was kind of like a guitar, bass, drums thing. I didn't realize it was like a horn section. And oh, all yeah, that. That's yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it was crazy, because he was this first guy that, like, most people think, because my, my whole story is, like, from a young person to, like, age 10, I lived in a predominantly black neighborhood, then I moved to the Burbs. And so people thought that, like, Maybe my music was more influenced by me moving from a black community into a white community because I like rock and roll and everything. But what the real case was, was when a song would happen on the radio back then, I mean, my dad's band, I mean, if there was something that had a rock vibe, they'd be like, guys, we've got to add a rock guitar player to the band. We can't discriminate against the sound of music. If people want to hear these songs, we have to get the right guys in the band. So his band was always multicultural, it was always all these different levels of musicians that I got a chance to meet and learn from. And I, it boggles my mind. That things are so rigid right now, but you know, it was cool to see my dad just kind of open my perspective to music through just different people. Yeah, man. I think it translates in the, in the work you put out too, man. I mean, you, I, for instance, like blacktop project. I mean, I feel like it's pulling from all sorts of genres, you know, like sometimes yeah. I feel like I'm, there's a Santana vibe. Sometimes there's like yeah. a, sort of like a sort of like a smooth jazz vibe i mean uh and i think but in a, and then it's always really exciting i love uh the group of guys that you're playing with on that i know ray's playing is does tommy play on all the records too yeah yeah how the how blacktop started was tommy uh ray and matt rodriguez went on the skate trip and they were recording a bunch of songs you know in the hotel you know and I guess they were skating a day on recorded night or whatever, how they had the routine. And so once they got a group of songs together, they got in touch with myself and another drummer from Chicago and asked us to play on these you know, tracks. And then from that first Blacktop record, which is featuring two drummers, then they decided, well, let's all of us start writing together with Matt Rodriguez and, and create Blacktop sound. And, you know, and. You know, it's kind of wild because we all kind of love funk music and rock music and gritty music, and that's what we want to do. So what age were you when you, when you started kicking into, like, to, you know, writing professionally and, you know, all those Powell Peralta days and that stuff? Okay, and what was the top of the question again, just so I can understand, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What what age were you at, or how old were you when, when oh, okay. you shifted so, to pro riding? Yeah, like, when I started, like, it was right, probably probably like around 85 is when I decided to start, you know, skating professionally, like basically being able to legitimize myself to get paid to travel outside and go into contests. Cause we had two different options back then. You could actually go and do demos or you could skate more contests. And so I did a, a, a mixture of both, probably like around 2021 20, ish, like right after I got my front cover, 
in 84, that's when everything started blossoming as far as me trying to take myself a little bit more serious. You know what I mean? I wasn't on the level of, say, where Tony Hawk or whatever, but there was so many different dynamics in skating that were undeveloped, and they, we all seemed to find our own place, which I'm bugged out about. You know, when I think about it, all of us, it was only 100 of us in the industry at, you know, at one point, so it was kind of crazy. Yeah, man, totally. Yeah, what, what was that like uh, getting that, you know, I mean, I know it was a, a pretty big deal, a great accomplishment to, to get that thrash your cover um and kind of a milestone um was that was that kind of a were you saying that's sort of like the shifting point when things started getting a little more serious for you yeah well it's like 84 was kind of a monumental year like i graduated in 82 and then i moved to philadelphia from wilmington delaware and i noticed that like the skate scene wasn't hadn't been developed there was no skate shops you know everything from the 70s and early 80s it kind of burned off and so there was this whole rebuilding and so by 84 because we were just skating backyard ramps our whole our whole goal was to basically represent where we were going to because we only had a, a limited number of spots to go to so you had to really focus like who was going to drive you and if, if you were driving like how long of a drive it was you know, because all of it played a part of your sessions so for me to know that we put those years in and to get that front cover it kind of gave me, like, if you can do this yourself, you can definitely succeed. You know what I mean? And and, right. and doing that around great people, like people who can say, okay, you can have the backyard for a 12-foot high plexiglass ramp that's only 12-foot wide. You know, most people wouldn't skate something like that today. I mean, that's what we were dealing with. And we turned that 12-foot wide plexiglass, you know, vert ramp into, like, a mecca, myself and Tom Grolsky. And, you know, I mean, it just made sense. Jim Murphy, there's all... Tons of people that used to skate that ramp. Mike Vallely, you know, just tons and tons of people. That's incredible, man. Well, so I, my cover, just yeah, well, how? Well, not to get off the thing, but oh, it just like the, what my cover meant was the fact that like I met so many amazing people, and then the fact that like I guess once we convinced ourselves that we were worthy of what we were putting into skateboarding, then there's somebody like Glenn Freeman that could come along and validate it. And, and, and capture something that wasn't even the focus of the photo shoot anyway, because it was mainly about Tom and us doing his doubles routine, not me, you know, not him discovering that I even do or love doing layback rollouts or, you know, because of Dwayne Peters. It was just, I just happened to do one in the session. He was like, yeah, you just do those. And he had me do like 30 of them. You know what I mean? So I was just, okay, I'm going to make every one of them and make them look like there's something because he's putting he's now focusing on me and what I'm doing. You know what I mean? And that's, just, that's, it, that bumped me out. Like that's, cause you don't know who's going to show up to your ramp. You know what I mean? It was so random that someone could just take a raw moment like that and then, you know, capture it. Yeah, man. I love that. It was something that natural and it, uh, got documented in such a, you know, kind of iconic way. Um, yeah. Well, so, so at this point, you know, I guess you know early twenties. Where where were you at in your in your kind of musical journey at that point? Had you already kind of been through some of your first bands outside of the project of your dad's, like some of your own projects? Yeah, Mc, yeah. McRad started in like late eighty two, early eighty three in Philadelphia. So as I was developing my, my contacts with with skateboarding and everything out west, I was also linking up with you know bands like JFA and different people, Gangrene stuff that I came up listening to. And then when we finally got our band together and the fact that we had maximum rock and roll to help us promote us, you know, sending a cassette and a, you know, crabby picture or whatever like that. And then it would give you DAP and it would just kind of, you know, write it up. And we felt that if we can get the maximum rock and roll, basically when I was like 19, then I, we can continue on this McRad thing. But the, the first version of McRad only lasted for about a year and a half because one of the members in the band only had a school visa so when he graduated, his visa was up and, you know, he, he just felt like he was conflicted about where, whether he wanted to be an American citizen or go back to London or go back to Holland. So we had to break up the sound. And it, it was a probably one of the hardest times for me to deal with losing something that was in my childhood, but it was making me act like an adult. Like you have to lose something to gain more, you know? So after that, broke up in like right at like 80, end of 84, summer of 84, 85 is when I, I wrote Weakness. So for me, just having the love for skateboarding and music, I, I just wanted to go into the next version of McRad. And that's where Stacy 
showed up and said, hey, gave me, you know, a, a chance to work with him and, 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 and vibe the whole thing about what I'm doing with kind of like still loathing that I, I came from this really cool kid band that we all skated and it just made sense and Thrasher gave us, you know, some depth. It's just kind of a heavy thing to lose and then have to recreate it again. Right. So at the, at the point that the original lineup dissolved and you had to kind of re reimagine it, had you guys had some tour history under your under your belt at that point? The, the long this the furthest we traveled from Philadelphia was uh, up to Connecticut. It's a club called Anthrax that you know everyone has played. Pretty most of the all the hardcore bands have, you know played there from way back in the day, and we played Trenton City Gardens, which is like an hour from Philly. You know, Anthrax was like about maybe two and a half. We played New York City. And I think probably the longest drive would be either at the Anthrax Club or actually playing down to D.C. That's what the first version, because I, at that point I was 19. The bass player Zeke was 15 and the other guys in the band were 16. So it was like, oh, yeah, I mean, yeah. they got cool. school to get to. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was a younger, younger vibe. And I was a guy that just. I was a year out of being, you know, graduating in 82 and I had made no plans to go to, you know, college. And back then, people like myself, regardless of color, we got a, kind of got looked down on that. I just wanted to ride a skateboard and play punk rock without having any college influence in, 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 my, in my dreams, you know what I mean? Right. I just it's, couldn't end, you know what I mean? It's strange how some people think that, uh, that college is the, is the only route to go when... Oh my you know, there's so many successful people who, who never wasted their money yeah. on student yeah. loan debt, you know? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, but yeah, man, so so after you kind of, you know, got this new lineup going, were you guys able to kind of dig into the project a good bit more after that? Well, yeah, like what I was doing, oddly enough, from the, uh, the end of 84, was I started was like, let me see if I can write a song by myself. So I wrote this song called Words of Life, and it was like more of like kind of a reggae song that would have some rock overtones. However, the, the first guy I recorded with, it was the, he was running a studio that was the first sign of what a digital studio would look like. Like it was all run by keyboards. There was no tape in the room. It was just all about kind of like digital recording. So I went to do this song with a guy who experienced it because I only knew a couple of studios. I wasn't locked in as I am now with most people and knowing who can produce what sound for what environment. So it's just, I kept writing as like me wanting to be the band. And I did formulate a band around what I was doing, which consisted of some friends and the original lead singer of McRab, which is Ethan. But I, I, for some reason, something just kept telling me to write. And maybe it was just me and my brother watching MTV all the time you know what I mean, before I would go skating, you know, when, when we were kids, that hearing all that music just made me want to get behind, well, well, how does this stuff work? And if you lose the band, how do you keep your sound creative? You know what I mean? Not just trying to emulate what was before, because that's, if you're trying to mend kind of a broken heart in the wrong way, it could be kind of weird, you know what I mean? Because you can't replace what's been before. You have to kind of... You kind of got to build from, from where you're at. Yeah, yeah and, 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 and writing is just like, talking or you know skating i mean if you if if you have a muscle for it and you know you can develop it and you you neglect it then you sound like a a neglected songwriter versus someone who's just saying okay let me just get out here and when i'm in the moment let me just write what's necessary for that moment so that's what i had to do because before i was leaning on other guys in the band and we could just hey i have this river yeah you know and we'd all hodgepodge it together but one it's all you and you have to see the vision and know what's happening it changes the whole dynamic of what songwriting means to the actual person versus yeah. the group yeah i mean that had to be like a a growing experience for you to to approach music that way as opposed i mean i i think the collaborative spirit is is huge and is important but it is it's uh it's a bit of an experience tackling a song top to bottom yourself and and uh yeah. and you know trying to get a full picture of yourself instead of taking this like little musical nugget and building mm-hmm. on it with you know four guys or, or whatever uh but yeah man that's that's awesome man i, I think you can kind of hear that shift too um especially on on the weakness stuff you know like that i mean it, it there's a, a bit of a sonic shift there for sure so so when did you kind of shift or i guess where what came most directly after mcrad as far as uh, what groups you were playing with 
Um, right when I recorded Absence of Sanity, which was basically around 86, um, midway through kind of like our year run with the record label, you know, which is from Deluxe's called Beware Records. Um, I had two, I had two offers. The first offer, uh, was McGrath played a show. We opened up for Dag Nasty and for some reason, Brian Baker and I started talking and he was like, look, I'm going in to record this next record, but we're currently looking for a drummer. And I was like, and I would love to, but like, I just recorded this record with you guys at Thrasher and I, and I need to stay focused. You know what I mean? So we stayed friends and they went on to record with Scott Garrett and that was great. But what, what happened was we did another show in New York opening up for Underdog, which is a band from New Jersey and New York. And they needed a guitar player, but it was at a, a couple of months later where I'd already kind of went through three months of promoting the record, being dedicated to the record. And Stacy hadn't picked it up to, to put it in Savannah Slamma and then put it in the public domain. So what I was doing was starting to once venture out from my responsibility of promoting the record because the skateboard, skate rock thing wasn't developed as it is now to where there was actual a ton of gigs and touring and and you know more lucrative things around it so i had to kind of start fending for my myself so i joined underdog right around say the middle of 86 and you know did vanishing point with them you know played lead guitar on that and then retoured for about a summer i went on a summer together and then from that point i got back into my solo career which was like you know the writing and did this record dreaming which came out in 89. So it was in that five year, six year window from 84 to 86, you know, the, from the ending of the first version to Mc, of McGrath to like what I did for Dreaming, that was all kind of a me following a track of being my own artist, but still being able to collab with other people that needed, you know, a guitar player that just maybe understood songwriting more than the next guy. Cause that's what the leader of the band wanted, you know, another another person to bounce off strength. You know what I mean? Because it wasn't like I put a, a an ad out saying, hey, I'm available for tours. Hire me. It's never I've never done. I've never, ever done that. It's always been like I see somebody at a hardcore show and someone's like, dude, I need a drummer ASAP. Can you blase, blase, blase? And I'm like, all right, no problem. You know, here's my number. I got your number. Let's talk. Rehearse. Bang. You know, it's literally that simple. Well, I mean, I think they always say that, uh, easiest to find a gig as a drummer because there's a million guitarists out there that, oh, yeah. <laughs> i mean you it's know true. that you know that that might be exaggerated a bit but it's true man no, I've, I've, really, I've, even in the small in columbia here like if anybody's you know in the market for a new drummer i feel like it's harder to come by than uh you know than a another guitarist who could who can sure. hang um but yeah, man, I, I was gonna say. So speaking of fending for yourself, you know, and and kind of learning that side of the of the game, when did you start picking up this session work that you kind of started leaning into? Was that was that uh, kind of going on the whole time, or or more so later on? I was kind of like started. I think my first gig that I got hired for for a session was a band called Anthrophobia. Like a, another band from Philly. Reading PA area, you know, that we played a bunch of shows with, but they needed a new drummer and we wanted to go out. All of us wanted to go out to the West Coast to do a tour, so we planned something to, to happen. So I think there's probably around like, like I remember being like a probably around 85 ish or so. And from it was like kind of one offs where people would just ask me to do things. It wasn't, I didn't have it set up like a business until I got back from recording my solo record. And, and learning that whole business, like, you know, working with Caroline Records and being in the pecking order with, like, Smashing Pumpkins and Hole. And, I mean, that's my record came out when all these groundbreaking people were getting their start. So I was had a lot of competition to deal with in that. So from me being a solo artist, basically in 89, that kind of through that winter and that summer, I met a dude named Jay Davison, and he plays saxophone for a band called Cinderella. That's a rock and roll group in Philly. And so he was like, hey, why don't you come to the studio and see if you like this session work? Because I was like, hey, I, I wanted to get into this, but I wanted to ask the right person. And from that point on, from basically that kind of summer of 89 going into 90, that's when everything started to kind of make sense because I, I had to learn how to find the tenacity of sitting around the studio, 
you know, being looked at as like you're not worthy and then you have to prove yourself. And then once you prove yourself, then you have to keep the consistency of your work to, to everyone else's liking and, and really not have an opinion unless you're asked to have an opinion. That's a hard job for a lot of musicians to conquer if you're not ready to be thrown around just for the sake of getting paid. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. I mean, that's a learning curve for sure. To be like, I'm yeah. here. I'm here to, to serve the song and and this yeah. guy and this guy's vision. Because you know, I think yeah. a lot of us grow up, like you said, you know, like leaning on your musical peers as far as like right. how how your creativity flows. And and it's this, this balance of, yeah, somebody might have a little bit of a vision, but they wouldn't be asking you if they didn't want you to. Right. To, to take it to a new direction but when it comes to session work sometimes i think it, i mean i'm sure it's case by case right sometimes they probably want a lot of input from you and sometimes they might be like hit the snare on the downbeat right. and <laughs> <laughs> um, that's great yeah and a lot of it's nervous energy too because it's people are afraid to commit to who you have in the room and and, and that's to go back on my point to make it a forward statement is it's like if you if you're concentrating on your, on yourself as a song, a solo artist and a songwriter there's there's never a session where you're always looking at the studio as I got to be energized to get to the studio to even pull this off regardless of who's there but when you're doing a session you know that like hey I'm either dealing with the artists themselves I can bring all my energy to it and and fall back so for me knowing that I I couldn't just survive as a songwriter at that time in my life I had to go to the well, let me just learn the calisthenics of what it's like to be in a studio so I can remove myself from the songwriter for a couple of years. I mean, still write stuff, but not try to prove myself from an age when I didn't have control over my ideas and my thoughts. It was hard for me to commit if I wanted to compete on a level of where Billy Corrigan or where Hole was, because that sound is dated. I, I never wanted my sound to be in, you know, encapsulated within years. I wanted it to go over like a, a kind of like a decade of time. You know what I mean? That's for right. the industry, they don't they don't promote that. This overall, like what what, what Bob Dylan or Jimi Hendrix has done. Overall, J- Johnny Cash. They've oh, they just developed so much. Johnny Cash's last last record with Rick Rubin till his first stuff. There's no way you could. The only threat is his voice. You know what I mean? It's right. Like, yeah. And and it takes a an artist a hell of a lot of time to think and and know that. And you have to know the studio calisthenics to be able to cut records like that. You you have to. Yeah, man, I think I think that's a beautiful way of thinking about things, and it's when I mean, you kind of got to think of it all as like big picture, right? About how yeah. all of this adds up to your growth as a player and as a songwriter, or whether it be specifically just as a drummer. You know, I mean, it's all gonna add to your to what you can bring to the table and being able to think about music from multiple angles like that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I mean, you've done a lot of session work, man, and and you know your your uh, your resume is is pretty impressive to say the least. Um, but uh, there's a few that like jump out at me as just kind of curious how they came to how they uh, came to fruition. But how how exactly did you land uh, that Billy Joel session uh, work that you that you had later on? Yeah, um, I was working for. A studio called Roughhouse Records. It's a studio on a record label, and that happened because of Jay Davison. So that was probably like eighty-eight, you know, um, eighty-nine, like well, eighty-nine, nineties when we really started getting into. Hey, like, all the other bass players were on tour. Right now, we need a new session guy to come in there, and you kind of fit the role. Although I'm a drummer, I, I came in as a bass player, so I started you know, rolling with that. And I just kind of kept it moving. I just, and I kind of totally forgot away from your question. Could you reinstate the question one more yeah, time? Yeah. Yeah. I, I was just, you know, I mean, you, you kind of hit on it a little bit already, but just curious, you know, in your, in your kind of career oh, arc the, okay, as a session player, how thing. you landed up. Yeah. In so basically, yeah. So basically I lucked out, um, Phil and Joe Niccolo, the butcher brothers who worked for Chris Cross, Cypress Hill, the early roughhouse records, Fuji's, all that stuff like that. And, Alongside with Chris Schwartz, who's kind of the the the, the headpiece of the Roughhouse Records Studio Four ish, you know, vibe. When I started my session work at that time, they were doing a lot of remix work. So, if someone from Columbia, like Luther Vandross, was dropping a single, our studio click, our team, our A team, 
would get chances to do these remixes because Joe and Phil Niccolo and Chris Schwartz were dealing directly with Sony in New York. So they had like a, like a kind of a grand grandfather father relationship, you know, going. And I lucked out to be in the studio as a bass player, but I'm naturally a drummer. So I wanted the session work that into where I was like, well, I can relate to a drummer and I can play bass, but I can also kind of internalize what the drummer's doing and, and, and not act like a bass player, like act like a drummer playing bass, you know, and that it just worked for doing session work because all the stuff was simple. It wasn't about a bunch of overplaying or who how technical your ability was. It was like, well, the producer in the room created the, the back in, in the day when it was just analog, the producer wanted to create the environment going to tape because tape is to me so responsive that if you actually put the right mindset in the room when you're going to tape for some reason analog picks it up just a lot better than digital and sonically it picks it up a lot better than digital because you can't sound right or sound good if you don't feel good you know what i mean it's like a, yeah, yeah. a really weird dynamic and i've seen it happen so many times i've seen it happen first g love record everything it was all done in the same studio four just that room had the vibe and everyone working in the studio at that time, business-wise, had the vibe. So they got a chance to remix Billy Joel's River of Dreams when he was actually in a turning point of his life of having money being embezzled from, on, from, from the manager at the time. And so he was basically recording a record in L.A. and he was recording a record in New York. And they found out what the single was, which was River of Dreams. And so they decided, hey, let's shoot it to the Niccolo Brothers and let, let them start on this remix, you know, because, you know, I guess Billy just wanted to really get his money back together. And he had the label behind him to run out two studios and a third studio. And these are all studios that are like that are a thousand dollars a day. Maybe New York or L.A. was probably two grand back then a day at that time. So, I mean, I can only imagine the studio bill was, you know, astronomical. Yeah. You know, I mean, crazy. So we started going into doing the remix. And when they called me, I was like, in the midst about to go skate and, and Joe, Joe Niccolo calls me. He's like, Chuck, I have a session for you. It's really, really important. Can you get down here? The only thing it is that you need is like, we don't have a five string bass here. Do you have a five string bass? And I was like, uh, let me work on it. So I went to my lo local music store in South Philly, bought this Epiphone five string. I mean, the, the spacing on it was crazy. It was just really too tight to play. But I bought it anyway. It was like a $300 base. And I took it to the session. It was not even intonated yet at all. I literally took it to the session, found out how I can tune it properly with the tuner, and also checked it with my ear. Then 25 minutes later, I walked out. Within a month later after that, it was like a multi-mega smash. You know what I mean? No, nothing about it on my end was even close to what a regular session player guy would like buy a base. Don't get it intonated. Take it right into the studio. Listen to the producer. The producer wants this. Give the producer that. And it makes sense like that. To line that up will be clearly impossible. So that that's why I, I, I'm still numb from it because I remember the excitement of getting the call going like, no, this is work. But they're saying this is it's something that's big. And at that point, it was just a, supposed to be a remix. The remix ended up being the single on the record. So that's that's what trips me out. You know, it's like, Dude, yeah, that that's incredible, man. The stars yeah. were aligned. That was that gig was meant to happen. It was weird, you know what I mean? And, it's, and I mean, other things have happened on that magazine, but you know, I was on a you know plane flying to Europe, you know, just for a tour with Michael Franti, way you know, way back. And I, I hear the song on the, the airplane. I was just like, oh shit, this is crazy. Like I have to get used to hearing this song. And at that point, no one was in the crossing over. And Billy Joel to punk rockers was so light, you know what I mean? There was no evangelistic you know you know think about the singer songwriter you know what i mean right and just about like if you're on that cheesy shit you're on that cheesy shit you know that's great for you but we're still you know i mean nirvana and all those bands were still baby bands at that point you know what i mean there was still there's all this angst coming out it wasn't smoothed out the way music is now and how pop music is, it is accepted amongst adverse types of people and groups of people now it wasn't that way back in like it was like 93 94 it was completely divided oh yeah man i mean that was an you know that's a that's a pretty interesting pairing of worlds man and the fact that like you said that it became the single is that's just awesome man it's a cool yeah. little musical milestone to hit um mm -hmm. speaking of those weird like sort of like serendipity moments uh was it was it something like that when you when you you know first started 
getting to know HR from Bad Brains? Was that, I mean, I know you mentioned earlier that you, you had some gig history uh, with McRad in D.C. Were you able to see uh, Bad Brains, like, early on, or did you? Yeah, basically what, uh, the Bad Brains, how they first entered my life is, you know, through Tom Graholski when I was, like, what, age 16, pay to come, and then McRad forms in 83, and then, for some reason, I mean, I saw the, you know, Bad Brains after that, but before that, we were just into them, and, and it was it was a group that we were all appreciating, and they weren't touring at that point. They had already played Philly and did all these amazing shows, but I was just wasn't in the midst of the scene to know when they were playing at that time. I was still right. a you know, younger kid in Delaware, so when we had McRad together, HR started his side project or his other band called HR and Company, which had Kenny Dredd, a bunch of other you know guys from D.C. And those guys were in cahoots with guys in Philly. So basically, once HR found out that we were kind of playing reggae, and because people in New York were talking, and you know we were around Jimmy Gestapo, the, the agnostic front, the early, 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 just like New York skins and you know kind of like the, the dregs of society back then, we as little kids were accepted because we were playing this kind of rebel music. So once we started kind of like you're getting that all sorted, uh, I'm trying to fucking think. I totally missed the question again. No, 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 you're on it, man. You're, you're kind of... Yeah, you're, that yeah tell me what the question was again. Uh, you know, just kind of, you know, it was kind oh, of yeah, mul- yeah, multitude. Yeah. So how, yeah, whether yeah, you so, were hanging yeah, at the yeah. Bad Brain shows and, and yeah, how you so started collaborating. Yeah, basically what it was is because of the... The, my, the people in Philly knew the guys in D.C., and HR was hearing about us from friends in New York. Although the HR was in D.C. at that point, he called me saying, hey, can you come open up for my 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 new band? And I was like, like 19, you know what I mean? So it was like getting a call from him, you know what I mean? Like picking up a freaking rotary phone and being like, okay, hey, you know, you want us to come play? It just happens to be HR, you know what I mean? like 19 year old kid you're saying that's like one of the biggest influences in, in punk rock at that time and, and they were still developing you know i against i hadn't even come out yet this is still early before that we were still buzzing off the roar cassette you know what Damn, I, mean? so, I, had, I had no idea that that you made that connection that early on in their career yeah man. crazy i mean they that's were crazy. they were on fire then man oh I, my god it was scary I, you throw on any live video from that era of Bad Brains, and it's just like, yeah, dude, man. it's unparalleled. Like, dude, HR is doing backflips. Yeah, I mean, he yeah. is on another level as far yeah. as like yeah. just intensity as a band. Yeah. I mean, I remember being, I don't know, twelve or thirteen, and finding, I I don't know what what year it was, but it's early on because mm-hmm. HR still has like real short hair, and and it's kind of got that like. You know, he's wearing those like button-down white shirts on stage. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, that's that's seventy-eight. Probably, yeah. man. Uh, yeah, seventy-eight. But they uh, there's a video of them playing Attitude around then, and dude, yeah. it's just wild. It that yeah, inspired yeah. me so much as a kid. That that's the reason I probably started my first punk band. Some some combination of of watching that and maybe like some Iggy Pop footage, yeah. you know. But like, yeah, God, man, that that shit makes you want to to get up and yell into a microphone, you know? Yeah, totally. So a lot of aggression, positive aggression. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, that. I, I don't think people talk enough about HR. Like, he, he I mean, I yeah. think within the punk community, obviously, people people know. Uh, but mm-hmm. I think I think that reach goes further than that, man. And, way, way. Yeah. Uh, but that's that's sick, man. So, so, so you guys link up around then. Where does it go yeah. after that, that first gig where you're opening for them? After that first gig, we opened for them. They also went back to Philly and did a show, and we we did a show a show with them there. And it was you know it was, it was cool because we were actually growing from the from kind of like the winter time to the summertime. Our sound kind of got a lot bigger because we were just amped on him noticing that we were just these young guys playing music that we're inspired by, and he's an inspiration to us. So before the ending of '84, we did one more show. And then we, you know, we broke up as a band and then he went on to do his thing and they released, you know, Quickness and all that stuff like that. And then for some oddball reason, I started working with Doc and Daryl just on music stuff. Just, and you know, just auditioning 
to play in this new version of the Bad Brains, which was right like around 94 into 95. But HR wasn't in it. They were like reforming something that was just uniquely theirs with this guy Israel. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I still took my initiative, my initiative from knowing HR and, and always loving the Bad Brains, even though he wasn't there. Because I, I kind of know the cycle of holding a band together and holding your image together and, and trying to be this, you know, I mean, he was a superstar back then. So it's hard to kind of like not have faults. You know what I mean? Right. When, when you, people just think that, oh my God, you're the inspiration to all of us and we don't even understand you. Uh, me knowing that even while I was in the Bad Brains, HR was having problems being himself and that's why he couldn't be accessible to so many different people. So like, it's like it's weird to even talk about it because to me it's so emotional that like, oh, I play with HR here, play with HR. Like, no, I've seen this guy grow to give me opportunities, to give his own self opportunities, to lose opportunities, to create drama. And then me knowing him in the past five, six years, I mean, me helping him get back on his feet just because he was, you know, on medication that he didn't need to be on. He wasn't properly diagnosed for schizophrenia. You know, it was a part of his whole film documentary which is finding hr you know scoring it but i was also a part of watching him be responsible for himself and how unhealthy he was at that time you know what i mean and and what the documentary really shows you i was finding out about my hero also but it seemed like everybody was just done with him it's why it's hard for me to talk to the shows because at one point they were like hr is over he's done he's whatever and then only six of us came in to make sure that he was good and now he's back at a level again where he can operate in society. I mean, a lot of people were giving up on their superstar and heroes. So it's like I'm kind of more blocked by people's ignorance towards HR versus like he's just a regular dude with schizophrenia and he wasn't treated right, but he became your hero and you can't fix your fallen hero because a part of you is fallen. You know what I mean? Like it was bugging me out. You know what I mean? The shows, I had great shows with HR, but I've, I've gone through the struggle with him in a very passionate way as a friend. And I've always wanted to look to him and be like, dude, just don't worry about the outside world. You know what I mean? Like we have to focus on keeping you alive because you are somebody that that's made a difference. No one's talking about it because no one wants to help somebody get better when they were such an influence at an early age. You know what I mean? It's kind of, it's kind of random that people would, you know what I mean? Well, I mean, you know, thankfully it's not exactly no one because it sounds like you, you, have you know been a, a great friend and and compassionate about you know just the kind of like complex nature of of <clears throat> where hr is and where you know where he's coming from um but yeah i i understand man i mean i know that you know he had such a shift uh in his thinking and 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 how he started creating that you know you know he kind of shifted out of the out of the you know punky aggressive stuff and right. I mean, you know the punk community that as much as I love punk music I would say if there's one thing they're definitely guilty of it's that there can be some closed-minded people within that you know like it, the fact yeah. that he's changing up his style alone would cause a lot of like you know yeah. narrow-minded punkers to turn their backs I mean think about I mean there's bands who took way less of a musical shift and got abandoned by their fans uh and it's just because you know people get this idea of what an artist is supposed to sound like to them or what you know i guess it's complex right they're attached to these songs and it it means something to them but if you're attached to this artist you should be attached to that artist's growth and not just their past so uh uh, i i love that that you have embraced kind of all sides of hr and and it works out perfectly because it seems like you and hr have a lot of shared interest, you know, because obviously you both went through a, a phase where punk music was kind of your priority, and then right. and then you both have like fully embraced reggae vibes like throughout your career as well, and right. uh, you, know, I, it, it's a natural pairing, um, and I and I'm I'm glad it happened, man, uh, because yeah. I'm all about, you know, keeping an artist's growth in mind and and trying to, you know support them regardless of your own 
right. references and what they do. Because as an artist, man, you got to be selfish. You know, you got to a certain degree. If you don't, yeah. you got to make the music you like first, or else it's kind of not as much of an accomplishment, right? You know, if you right, yeah. you can make the same records people want to hear your whole life, but by the thirteenth record that's kind of in that same musical yeah. genre you're going to be burnt out on it and you're just going to be going through the motions man like you're, um, uh so yeah um, i mean i mean so so were you saying when you first started linking up with with the with the rest of the band outside of hr that was when they were they were dealing with israel on vocals right yeah when like that was probably say like 94 and that's at the time i was really doing a bunch of session work i was also working with a, a group called the goats and that were on rough house records so i was kind of in all this kind of in these conversations of what should happen around music and me and then once doc and daryl wanted to regroup you know what i mean before they even found israel i was already ready to be like okay let's just rebuild this where we have to do it and then once they found israel their producer made a music industry a, you know, Ron St. Germain just said, hey, you guys should get Mackie back in the band because he's a stronger drummer and he knows the history of it. And and back then, when I was working with him, because I rehearsed a lot of the, like about four or five of the main songs that are on the record Rise with Israel. And we were just writing songs before he got in. So I'm a part of that record, but business-wise and decision-wise in the business, I wasn't a part of what, what went on making the record. And it, 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 at that point in time, it bugged me out, but a year later, they opened the drum seat back up again, and they were still signing Epic Records, and Israel was still in the band. So we still had our our connection from the rehearsal days, but what I started to realize is I missed a lot of the disappointments of going through the business side and maybe that record being done by the wrong producer, and it wasn't what, what Daryl really wanted, and he just went along because it was an opportunity to deal with epic and they're a great record label and, and, and a company to that that can hoist your dreams to the next level I mean, it's great but as far as some of the freedom that an artist would have is what i was starting to learn from this whole rebuilding of it and i was like you know what i wasn't the drummer meant for that level of business at the time it would have probably hit me hard to be on the record and knowing that the producer chose to start using different things that were not natural punk rock like sound replacement on drums and and, and and things that weren't natural to how Mackie sounded and how I knew him live from hearing him with the Crow Mags or even how Earl would sound and, and listening to him. So there was a lot of decisions made around the growth of that record that looking on it now I can, I can say wow you know I'm, I'm glad that I stayed in my lane when I was in it at the time I took it more of a personal thing because it was like someone's taking an opportunity from me Versus looking at the global aspect of it as like, do I can I even apply myself to the pressure of what it's like to be in an industry standard procedure? Here's the producer, here's the band, you do what the producer says if you want this opportunity to be with us. That to me would have fucked my head up. You know what I mean? Because I'm oh, used yeah, to having yeah. freedom. And to me, if I'd have been working with the bad brains, I would have been the one almost at the AR person going, like, you know what, you're a prick. You know what I mean? We didn't build our scene like this. And money people don't want that. They just want the end all product. And that's what I'm realizing now to even choose to be in any sort of industry, even if it's an underground industry, someone's going to try to fucking regulate it and put it in a box. And if the box works, then everyone has to kind of adhere to it, whether it's Bush Vig or whether it's any of these guys that are out here making these records. You know what I mean? Once somebody sets a standard for a tone for how people internalize emotion, which is music, you know, we have to kind of adhere to some of these rules and even the business side of it. You know what I mean? Instead of us being, I was in the band, they kicked me out. I, w I wasn't on this record. Fuck them. That record sucks. Versus like, are you emotionally ready to deal with the business that comes with being in this industry, regardless of where your emotional pride is at? You know what I mean? And that, that If someone would have told me that at a young age, I'd have been like, oh, okay, I see. Just take your bruises where you get them and, and get on with your get on with your way. No one's going to make sure that every record is great. Every opportunity is great. Every signing of every piece of paperwork is amazing. They just make it like you glorify being a rock star, being known. And there's a lot of heartache and, and growth and dealing with people in general. You know what I mean? It has nothing to do with people coming to your shows. It has nothing. Yeah, man. Well, it it, of, it sounds know. like you dodged a, a few of those growing pains there, but you also probably dodged, like, I mean, speaking of like those, 
kind of narrow-minded aspects to, to some of the punk scene. Uh, I'm sure that those guys were getting some pushback for carrying on without HR. And, <laughs> and you probably got to not take the full, you know, take all of those blows. Yeah. Know, being that you weren't there for the whole initiation yeah. of Israel. Um, exactly. But, yeah, I mean, I mean, I, it sounds like you definitely uh, caught wind that that was the case. I mean, were the rest of the guys in the band, did it, I mean, was that kind of what was going on? Were they facing a lot of pushback on that? Yeah, there was a pushback because, you know, Israel was so close to HR. Part of his name is Israel, you know what I mean? So it's like there was all these connections. And at that time when I met Israel, like we did one rehearsal and we did six songs and it sounded better than most of i mean i've i've was around him when chuck mosley was singing for him and that was great and i was around him with his dude taj was singing for him and that was good i mean there's a bunch of the guys who tried out but israel was the one to me that could bring the fire but it wasn't it's like it's so hard to kind of even it's like someone did the ultimate comic book of a punk rock hero and never pressed it like hr's presence even at that time in 95 people were just like dude like why would you even step up in the shoes that, like, I don't even think HR could fill. You know what I mean? It's like... Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine being Israel in that situation. Oh, my God. I mean, it's crazy. Because, I mean, I even tried out to audition for the leads, being singing for vocals on on Quickness. And it was just... they. I mean, Doc had me singing in a room with his kids jumping around, like, on a four-track. Be like, here, do it. If you're, if you're bad, I'll do it. And that's when I realized how amazing... Doc and Daryl and the Bad Brains were. I mean, they went through that pressure. I mean, they put about like close to what seven kids between them all through some of the wildest dynamics and, and watching all that stuff with HR. And when they finally got a chance to rebuild it and get on Epic, I mean, they had a kid that sounded like HR but didn't have the legacy, and they didn't even know how to create a legacy, even if it was bullcrap. Like the industry wasn't set up to be like this kid's been in the trenches forever. And he's just as legit as an Asian. I mean, there was no windmill for, for Israel to be his own person. So he just got trapped into, like, trying to be an HR clone. And I I knew that it was bothering him. But my whole thing was, it was just like, why why can't we just make this, like, a Van Halen thing? Like, yo, Sammy Hagar steps in. This is Sammy Hagar's version of what's going on with us. It was like Israel was always getting thrown up against HR's dynamic. And along with the other drama in the band that just is, is naturally there with anyone's dealings, you know, it, to me, it made me realize that you have to have a mental thickness because if you step into something that's already been beaten up emotionally and you're, and you don't have the same tenacity to deal with that, you could actually be dragging the band down because you're getting caught up in the drama more so than the band is because it's really not higher ease drama. You should just go in and do your job. And if you see something dramatic, it should only be let me step up when there's ignorant violence or whatever happens within music or someone's not safe. Normally, everyone just jumps in when they see, oh, there's a red hot argument on the table. So and so and so and so and so and so. And you know what I mean? No one's there to do their job, but they're there to catch up on the latest drama. You know what I mean? Because I've seen too many bands and tours fall apart because no one's there for the greater cause of like, you guys have a once in a lifetime. You should be you should be thankful of your situation. You know what I mean? Yeah, man. I mean, I guess a like I mean a a good kind of point to compare is like you know I mean you with McGrad, you know you kind of ex- accepted that you weren't going to be able to hold on to this first incarnation of the band that you loved right. so much, and you kind of figured out your own way of gracefully transitioning into the second phase. Yeah. Uh, so you had this perspective of like, and, and and you weren't. It sounds like with McRad, you didn't try to be like, all right, let's carbon copy what we had in the first era of the right. band. You just said, nah, right. like we're not gonna have that. That's gone. Let's let right. that. Let's. I think of it as like the Seinfeld approach, right? Going, letting it go out on top, right? So like, yeah, yeah. But uh, and then you just shifted gears like this. Let's make the best. Like 2.0 version of this band that we can, instead of trying yeah. to do anything we can to 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 salvage, you know, version one. Um, yeah. And it sounds like Bad Brains kind of were in that pos- like in a position where 
people really didn't seem like at least, and I'm sure it's because of you know when you're on major labels, there's a little more outside influence. Uh, yeah. Part of me kind of wishes, like you're saying, that the band could have just taken on Israel and said, you know, we had this, you know, this badass run with HR, right? Like yeah, no denying yeah, it, yeah. but we're never gonna recreate that right you can't recreate that with yeah. without a crucial piece of that puzzle so exactly this, it would have been great if if you had had people on the team like and this isn't like a shot at epic but just you know what a, you know maybe they're not as you know a major label is not going to have the diy ethos you know so right. but you you wish that there was some sort of middle ground where israel could have just done his thing and you guys we're able to just focus on making the best new version of Bad Brains and not trying okay. to approximate HR. Right. But right. what what has is do you know? I mean, not to you know, not to have you try to to speak for Israel, but post his collaboration with with Bad Brains, do you feel like he was ever in a position to to really kind of uh, blossom in his own right and and in his own style? Outside of that sort of like forced HR vibe that he had to kind of well, lean yeah, into? I think that what what he found out early on is that he was it's it's all about percentages and 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 and, and property. It's like playing monopoly monopoly with your emotions when you, when you get into a band. So he started to realize that all of his energy that he was putting in didn't amount to what he was getting back from the, the business side of it. It's not that you know his talents weren't worthy enough of it is is that at that time his equity and his stake in the equity of what bad brains were he was just a guy filling the slot to me it's just like you know the art show must go on so we need a new character you're the character in the art show but however the original character in the band has the longevity to propel the band through all these different changes so i think that once he found out that he was a part of the change but his own business needed to be created outside of bad brain that to me was his gift out of him being a strong singer and staying in his own lane. And even his last band that he had with Todd, Todd Youth, I mean, they had a really good tour going on. It's just that, you know, here is, here is you know, Israel learning again. If you start something with someone crucial in the band, it's going to be hard for you to, to go on without Todd. I mean, he's just too much of a character. And for one, a great friend for years and years and years. But when Israel and Todd got together that's when i knew i was like he finally found his niche within that bad brains world it was just never the bad brains that was just once again the gift to me for for israel was i got to tour the world i got to be myself in someone else's clothes but i understand who i am outside of all of that and then once he gets you know once he creates himself again he creates himself with now he's got to go up against life so life is going to take your homie and to lose somebody like Todd in the band is like you cannot I mean he could do that band again but people love Todd just as much as they love HR you know what I mean in a whole different light you know what I mean in a, in a light that where you'll have people come up to you into your side and you're here be like why are you doing this bullshit dude like you understand how much we love Todd you know what I mean like this is yeah. not something that no one wants to shit on early New York ground even LA there's the you know the troopers out there that made us happy and gave us the Jimmy Gasapos and you know Mike Muir's and you know what I mean, all those people that Dan from Excel, you know what I mean, RKL, all these guys, they were the spice makers, you know what I mean, Barry from Necros. They were these were you know what I mean? And it's it's so wild that at the end of the day, people have to look at growth and, and you coming into a, an established building that like just take your space, man. Just get your chair, sit down, you know what I mean? Like in ten years from now, this we could be in all a completely different place, you know, like because if we I feel that so many people have caught bad brains up in their drama that it's hard for them to even people to look through because they even let it into the documentary that's out. You know, one of the ones about, you know, the band and this girl from New York did it, but it just gives people more like places to put like pins on the map of how a band really acts when they're unstable. And it's like bands are completely unstable. You know what I mean? It doesn't matter what it is. It's just that do you like the work ethic in that unstable environment? You know what I mean? It's highly emotional. You know, it's like I, there's no way that anyone else could have went through what Israel went through with the Bad Brains, and he has to feel chosen. You know, even though I know he probably doesn't agree with still 
then maybe he deserves more, but he's the only guy that got that shot to be as close to HR. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's true, man. Now. I mean, you, to like, even be considered, right, is yeah, is, a, no. is an accomplishment. It's a complete accomplishment. If there was 10 other guys that could have been there, they would have done it. They, yeah. they did, you know, like, you know, not even Chino from Deftones. I mean, he could do it. I mean, there's a recording of Chino singing Rock for Light. Where my, I'm on drums, and it's Doc and Daryl and Chino, and it sounds great, but still, Israel sounds more convincing. Chino's yeah. his personality sounds amazing on it, but Israel could hold the body of music. I mean, we were doing 25 songs, you were doing 30 door, 30 day tours, and 28 shows. So it's like in our days off, we're driving days. I mean, so you're talking like, you know, two and a half hours every night, man. Like, and he handled that. Israel handled it better than I've seen. I mean, we were doing tours back to back to back. It was no break. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a huge workload for a bunch of guys holding up the building for the bad brains. And, and, and I would do it all over again because the growth of when you're going through the pain and you're, and you're catching bullets, the emotional bullets, it sucks. You know what I mean? It's like, you can't be a stunt man in your own movie. You know what I mean? It's like, it's that type of mental thing. Yeah. Right. Unless you find out a way to be a stunt man in your own movie and be like, okay, I'll just let them hurt the body double. I'll just be back here micromanaging the fact that I can still eat and pay my bills. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Not everybody's Jackie Chan doing their yeah. own stunts, man. No way. <laughs> <laughs> well, man, that, that, it's all it all adds up to a pretty, pretty beautiful career arc, man. Like you've 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 had your hands uh, and and your musical ability put towards so much uh, art that means a lot to us over here, man. And uh, you know, it's, it's great talking to you, and it's and it, it meant a lot to me to have you on the comp that we did, man. Um, thanks for thanks for joining Ray on that track. Uh, Oh, that's a great man honor. Yeah, man. Uh, what was the name of the studio that that you tracked your drums at for that at again? Uh, David Ivory Studio is called um, Ivory Productions. Nice. Yeah, man. Uh, you guys. I mean, I know that I was talking to Ray. It sounds like you just kind of went in and just just nailed it. Just a few takes. Sent him a couple. Supple, yeah. couple passes at it, man. And it adds so much. You know, I know Ray when he was first thinking of doing that dose track. He wasn't even necessarily thinking that it needed drums, uh, and yep. then and then he heard what you what you added to it, and it just kind of changed his entire thought on it. Uh, and it's cool, man. It, it makes it such a unique take on it because you know the original is just just two bass guitars, you know. So this version with with you uh, and Ray uh, and Rachel Ann, it just is a I don't know, man. I I was telling Ray when I first heard it, I knew it had to be track one on the comp. It just takes me somewhere somewhere sick. awesome and. Yeah, man, I, it was an honor to have you involved with the compilation, man. Thanks, man. And I would also big up another person involved in the whole sound of it is a friend of mine, Rick Frederick. He did the actual mastering, and he mastered the digital recording onto analog to kind of give it that old-school low-end, and, and, and Ray kind of really liked it. And I'm really happy that it worked because, once again, it was on a whim that I asked someone to do something. So, hey, yo, check this track out. I just did this thing with Ray. You know, we just recorded it with David. You know, David has his history with the roots and, you know, you got me, you want to grab me with them. And we're all doing this stuff in the midst of the quarantine and, and you know, practicing social distancing, stuff that we've never done in music ever before. And I wasn't even in the studio when it was mastered and I was only in the studio with Dave for half an hour. And the fact that Ray called me, just the kinetic energy of being involved with your project is is mind-boggling how it came together because it sounds like we planned it and there yeah, was no dude, it does sound it sounds way less off the cuff than it is yeah. you know it's completely yeah <laughs> dude uh it, it worked out man and and uh i mean it sounds like that's kind of been the nature of a lot of a lot of the of the big things that have happened in your life or just uh, a lot of the exciting things is that just being around and available when the call came right yeah <laughs> uh yeah and, 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 I mean, not. I mean, you know, you wouldn't be getting the calls if you didn't have the chops, you know. Uh, right. But it, it, I'm glad that you have this kind of long history of a willingness to take on these like spontaneous projects because whether it be, you know, I'm not holding this this comp to the same level as a spontaneous Billy Joel session, but I mean, I do think it is. It speaks to your to I your do. work ethic, you know. Yeah, yeah I do. Wow, thanks, man. <laughs> Well, dude, it, it has been great talking to you, man. Uh, you and you know, hopefully, we can link up sometime in the future. But uh, 
Yeah, I guess I'll let you go and enjoy the, the little bit of overcast day you got there in Philly. But, man, it's been great talking to you, and I hope you have a great day, man. Cool. Please send me your address. Uh, text it to me so I can get you out a shirt. Hell yeah, man. We'll send you a, a Comfort Monk shirt, too. What? Uh, I'll text you my address. You text me your shirt size and address, and we'll make it happen. Thank you. All right, man. I'll see you later, Chuck. See you. See ya. Peace. Bye-bye. Coming out soon on Comfort Monk Records, we got Suppose You Grow by the amazing band Stagbriar. Yep, that's going to be the, the second hard copy release that we've put out. I guess our compilation sort of counts as a first record, but uh, CM002, Stagbriar Suppose You Grow, is coming out August 21st, so look out for that, guys. Available at stagbriar.com. This has been Comfort Monk Productions.